that's why. In the late 30s, when Stalin was in his uh, prime in the Soviet Union, Stalin's name was mentioned in some sort of community gathering. And when people heard his name, this triggered a standing ovation and quite a dilemma because no one dared to be the first one to sit down. And finally, an elderly man who was unable to stand any longer took a seat. His name was discovered and he was arrested the next day. He failed to worship the idol long enough. In a similar incident in 1938 on Adolf Hitler's 49th birthday, the prisoners in a work camp were ordered to remove their berets and to revere the Nazi flag. And all at once, everybody took their, their hats off except for one guy, Paul Schneider. And they pulled him out of the crowd and beat him with an oxhide whip because he refused to worship the idol. This morning, I want to take a look at an event in the Old Testament which involves uh, Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi, uh, the king of Babylon. And we'll pick up the narrative in a season when Nebuchadnezzar is no longer satisfied to have the Jewish people only as slaves to do his work. Now he has a growing desire for their worship. It's a trend not uncommon among autocrats and dictators and narcissists. Hunger for power is insatiable at, at every level. Back in the days when I refereed basketball, I would occasionally be assigned a partner who you could tell they enjoyed the power of wearing the, the stripes. And a referee like that wasn't content to stay out of the way and blow the whistle only when necessary. No, they wanted to be noticed. They wanted to take control of the court. And those were the least enjoyable games of the season. And my thought was that on this court, this is probably the only place in the world where this person has any power, and they wanted to make the most of it. Nebuchadnezzar tries to make the most of his moment. In his mind, to be controlling people's worship, that would be a rush of power he hasn't had before. So this king of Babylon, gold, that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, a huge monolith that you would see from far away. And the deal with this idol is this, whenever the conductor strikes, strikes up the royal music, everyone is to bow down and worship this 90-foot-tall image. We're not told how often the music plays. We don't know how many times a day or how many times through the night the music starts up. We don't know who's in charge of starting the music. But here's the rub. If you don't bow down and worship when the music starts, the penalty is a trip to the royal blazing furnace. Quite a harsh punishment. Three young Jewish boys who had been hand-selected by the king's chief of staff for a special assignment make a, decision, make a decision to not break God's first commandment. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the first commandment states, you're to have no other gods before me. And these three guys choose to obey this commandment from God of Israel and not bow down to the idol. Some other people who don't like them see this and report them to the king. So we have a standoff. King Nebuchadnezzar versus Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But really the showdown is between King Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Israel. You and I can read about this historical event in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3 we have the opportunity to see what biblical faith looks like, at least in this situation. And this story, along with all the others I focused on in the Old Testament, is one you really need to be familiar with. While studying for this morning, um, I found a book by a guy named Brian Chappelle called The Gospel According to Daniel. It was very helpful to me. And so some insights from the chapter that he talked about, Daniel 3, are kind of what I'm going to share with you today. So let's pick up the story in chapter 3, 13, right after the kings uh, hears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego violated the edict. 
says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Don't miss that line. Then who will be able to rescue you from my hand? This king of Babylon is not only taunting these three men, Nebuchadnezzar is also taunting their God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. That is to say, in our words, you're not the boss of me. We don't answer to you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. That is quite a bold proclamation. And it's where I'm going to turn the spotlight in just a moment. Let's finish the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with these boys and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar is taking their words and their choice personally. So he turns the thermostat up beyond the highest setting. Verse 21, so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. I have no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar after this moment, is still all about other gods. But he does recognize something different about the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now that we all know what happens, let's go back to the statement that these three young men make to the king in verse 17 and 18. You don't have to watch many Disney movies to hear this message. Good things happen to those who believe. If you have enough confidence in an outcome, your wildest dreams can come true. If you believe enough, if you just believe enough, you can win the ship, you can win the girl, you can become the princess. If we really, truly believe, good things will happen. People generally believe in believing. We may even believe that our belief can be of such magnitude and so targeted to the right outcome that we back God into a corner where he has no option 
but to go along with us. It's as if God looks around to see what we're believing and then comes to join us in our belief. Over 20 years ago, um, Southside was in a very challenging season as a church family. It was not an enjoyable time to be on staff or uh, to be a shepherd. There was one of my shepherd friends that carried a resignation letter in his pocket around just in case he wanted to pull it out today. We were experiencing dysfunction at significant levels, and I was ready to run. I just wanted to hang out with college students. That's all I really was concerned about. I had little interest in getting bogged down into leadership conflicts at that point in my life. So I applied for a job at another university, and I believed I was made for this particular job. I had no doubt that I could be successful there. This place, in my mind, had a lot of untapped potential that, that I, could, I could make effective. I was invited to interview. I thought it went well, and I believed. I believed God was going to open this door. I believed it would happen. But as you can see, uh, it was a no-go over 20 years ago. In their eyes, I was not the man for that job. So what happened? Did I not believe enough? Did God fail me? When we don't get what we want, when we don't get what we believe is best, when our life is hard or not going our way, are these situations caused to an inadequate amount of belief or maybe because we have an inadequate God? From Chappelle's book, he writes this, if bad things happen because our faith is inadequate, then no one has sufficient faith because everyone faces problems in this broken world. But if bad things happen because our God is inadequate, then we have no one to turn to in this troubled world. I'm sure you realize the truth of what Jesus said to his followers when he said each day has enough trouble of its own. That's a true statement in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, how many of you would like to have a day with a little bit less trouble in it? In John 16, Jesus says plainly, in this world, you will have what? He doesn't say in this world you will have trouble unless you believe more. Belief and trouble are unrelated. Belief and prayers not answered the way you wanted them to be answered are unrelated. Lost keys, traffic jams when you're in a hurry, parenting challenges, financial trouble, job insecurity. These things happen to everyone, those who believe and those who don't, because each day has enough trouble of its own. Or in the words of Sheryl Crow, every day is what? A winding road. We can measure, we cannot measure the adequacy of our faith by the absence of troubles. We know too much. We've seen too many instances of situations flooded with prayer spoken by faithful people, believing in a particular outcome, an outcome which clearly seems to be aligned in our mind with the nature of God. People we love have spent a lifetime fighting inner demons they certainly didn't invite in. People we love have died too soon. People we love have have battled diseases which could have been healed. People we love have endured family dysfunction which didn't need to happen. We know too much, don't we? We know too much to think that the Bible teaches us that if we have an adequate amount of belief, then we get what our heart desires. Because of what they believed and in whom they believed, these three young Jewish men refused to bow down to to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And that belief landed them in a hot seat. And I want you to see that on their way to the fire, these three men did not pretend to know what would happen to them. 
They did not claim to know how this would end nor what their God would do. They did say they knew their God had the capability to save them, but they did not claim he'd have the inclination to save them. Look at the line again, the proclamation. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can teach us a lot about faith, about what believing God looks like. And one way they do that is by teaching us what faith isn't. Sometimes an effective way to learn about something is to see what it isn't. It's good to be able to just cross a few options off the list. And one thing we see in their response is this. Faith isn't trusting in the quantity of our belief. Faith is not about an infusion of confidence and an expulsion of doubt so that what we want to happen must occur. Genuine faith, biblical faith, isn't about increasing our level of confidence by praying really hard or listening to Caleb all day long or by giving something away that's special to us or engaging in some sacrificial activity or even taking the role of a martyr. Genuine faith is rooted in confidence in a sovereign, omniscient, gracious God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego admitted they did not know what would happen to them. Listen carefully to their message to the king one more time. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us, and he will rescue from your hand, us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we won't serve your gods or worship the idol you've set up before us. Is there any phrase that kind of stands out to you there? How about even if he does not? They were not sure. They were not sure if they'd be thrown into the fire. They were not sure if they'd be rescued from the fire. They were not sure they wouldn't be turned into ash. They simply weren't sure of what God would do. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were here today to give us their testimony, they would let us know in their confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, the outcome would not be secured by a strong confidence in their own desire. Genuine faith is focused on God, not on outcomes. You and I pray to God for what we think is right, and we trust him to do what is best. These boys boldly stated, even if they died in the fire, they would not let go of their God. We may not understand. We may not agree with God's choices, what he says yes to, what he says no to. But we believe in him, and our belief does not waver when life doesn't go the way we think it should. I have a gracious word for you to hear. When things don't go your way, that does not mean your belief is insufficient. You and I are not subpar Christians because we're facing challenges. These three young men were definitely not excited about a trip to the furnace. They were not filled with confidence about what's going to happen. If they lived through this, they knew their God was near. If they died, they knew their God was even nearer. Tragedy does not mean God has abandoned us. Difficulties do not mean God is impotent. And bad things do not indicate an inadequate belief. Faith is not trust in the quantity of our belief. Faith is also not trust in the quality of our belief. When we initially moved here to do ministry with college students, in the first few years, we spent a lot of hours hosting Bible studies with the intent of introducing people to Jesus. I thought, surely, God will help make these Bible studies successful because That's what he's all about, right? Making disciples. 
we had Bible studies any place we could imagine. We had Bible studies in the dorm. We had Bible studies in apartments. We had Bible studies at convenient lunch spots. We had studies early in the morning. We had studies at noon. We had Bible studies late at night. We had girl studies, boy studies, co-ed studies, bring your pet studies. This belief I had in the outcome of what we were doing was quality. It was a quality belief. It was God-honoring result that I was after. But that part of our ministry never really blossomed. In a lot of other ways, we did tremendous good. But we were never evangelistically effective, it seemed to me. It doesn't seem to be true that God will always clear a path for us because we have a righteous desire. I'm sure each of us have had what we believe to be a righteous desire, a a holy outcome, a God-honoring goal. We prayed, we planned, we shared the idea. Others were in our court supporting our plan, our idea, but God stayed silent. He remained on the sidelines, and that was fairly confusing. After all, we may have even believed this plan was given to him, given to us by him. In situations like this, I need to be careful not to believe God failed me because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. My belief and my faith does not require God to do what I want, even if it seems to be for the right reasons. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to this 90-foot idol because they chose to remain loyal to God. And I have no doubt they believed their choice was right, and they believed God would honor that. However, they didn't presume the outcome onto God. I have no doubt they would rather not be thrown into the fire. I'm pretty sure they might believe God would agree with them, but they said, if he does not, we'll still be loyal. If he does not, we will still stick with him. We will still give him our worship. And that's not easy to do, is it? When you've done the right thing, when you want the right thing done, and God doesn't jump in to help, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we do what these three guys did. We trust, we listen, we wait, we worship. One author writes the simple statement, we need to let God Uh, We need to be willing to let God be God. We don't presume on God. Our righteous desires don't handcuff him. Our wishes are not his commands. We don't trust in what we decide is right. We trust God does what is right. If we look to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for insight, their experience and perspective could simply be stated in these words, obey God and trust him to take care of the outcome. These three men don't pretend to know how this predicament will turn out. They certainly would like to avoid being thrown into a fire. Uh, However, in all of this chaos, they see their primary duty is to obey. Their job is not to try to figure out what God will do. If they were in charge, here are a few things they might have done. Destroy the idol. alter, Alter the edict. Douse the flames. Change the king's heart. But none of that happens. So here they stand in front of a furnace. Finally, believing in a predicted outcome does not guarantee that outcome. A surprising demotion today does not guarantee a better opportunity tomorrow. A demotion may simply mean we're in for hard times. Faith is not believing in our insight. Faith is not made more legitimate because we predict an outcome. God may not provide money for your passion. God may not introduce you to the man or woman of your dreams. He may not land you your ideal job. Just because this doesn't happen does not mean a better opportunity is coming around the corner. 
it's sobering to realize most all of, all of God's prophets were lonely, ineffective, and ignored. Our wishes are not the basis of God's wisdom. If faith is tied to outcome, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do so well. But we see these, these men didn't place any confidence in the outcome. They said clearly, we don't know what God will do. We don't know if he will spare our lives. Again from Chappelle's book, we don't have faith because things are going well. We don't lose faith because something goes poorly. Great faith does not claim to know only what only God can know. It claims to know the God who knows. That's a good line. It claims to know the God who knows. We have difficulty at times deferring to God's wisdom when our prayers seem to not be getting through. We, we believe this person needs to be healed. We believe she will be healed because of the potential she has to make a kingdom impact or because she has children to raise or parents to care for. At the end of Hebrews 11 is a long list of people who believed in what God could do. Sometimes he followed through on that belief and sometimes he didn't do what they wanted him to do. From verse 36 of Hebrews 11, some faced years in flogging while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We need to be on guard so that we don't allow an unfulfilled, even holy desire cause us to lose sight of God, who he is and what he knows. So that's, that's a little bit of what we see faith is, isn't as we listen to the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith is not rooted in the quantity of our belief. It's not rooted in the quality of our belief. Faith isn't rooted in the confidence of a predicted outcome. When it comes to genuine biblical faith, I have three words to share with you. Here's the first. We believe God is able. Paul says this beautifully in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, our God is able to save us. And there's no doubt about that in their minds. They had good reasons to believe their God is able. All they had to do was to read their past journals and the journals of previous generations of God worshipers. This list of God's accomplishment is long. The scroll is thick. The experiences are numerous. There's no doubt God is certainly able. They could recall God saving Noah from the flood and Israel from Pharaoh's tyranny and Gideon from the Midianites and David from Goliath and, and on it goes. Their God is able. What's included in your list of things God is able to do? What has he done in your life? What have you seen him do in the lives of others? Have you seen him reconcile relationships? Have you seen him lead you to a healthier faith? Have you, have you watched him plant you in a church community that's helped you grow? Has he saved you from a disastrous decision? So many of us realize God is definitely able. We believe God is also good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego affirm God's goodness. 
They knew he would show up and do something good. They affirm God is able even to rescue them from the fire. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, he will do good by rescuing us from your hand, King Nebuchadnezzar. How, how can they be so sure? This sounds like a statement Job made when his life and his family and his livelihood, I mean, it was just all falling apart. And Job says, even though he slay me, I will hope in him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted the goodness of God even when their situation looked hopeless. So we believe God is able. We believe God is good. The last word I want to leave you with is this. We believe God is present. Verse 23, Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, yes, we did. And he said, look, I see four men walking around, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. When our kids were young, and we would hear their call in the middle of the night, they would see a shadow or hear a sound, and then I'd hear them yell, Dad, you know, Dad. And I would do what all dads do. I'd wake up their mother. You know, I'd get out of bed and head to their room. And then when I was present in the room, things changed. The scary noise, the spooky shadows, it didn't matter anymore because dad was here. It's hard to say definitively who this fourth person is in the furnace with the boys. It's interesting that King Nebuchadnezzar refers to this fourth person as a son of the gods. Because we're familiar with someone who is referred to as what? The son of God. Pretty close to the son of gods. And the son of God we know made a promise to us. He said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. God didn't keep these men out of the fire. Instead, he found them in it. We're we're not shielded from distress and disease and discomfort and danger. But it's in our loneliness and anxiety that God shows up and walks with us. Faith does not predict God's ways or demand certain response. Faith's finest hour may be found when our belief in a God who is able, a God who is good and present, opposes King Nebuchadnezzar's three words, burning, fiery, furnace, with these three words, but even if. God doesn't always give us what we want, the job that satisfies, the husband or wife we've dreamed of, the children we desire, the healing we desperately want, the reconciliation we long to occur, the recognition we deserve. Every Christian, every one of us has to face the alternative possibility that even if he does not give us what we want, we will not let go of him. We'll still do his will. Life as a believer isn't easy. Every day has enough trouble of its own. And Jesus promises, in this world, you'll have trouble. That's not cross-stitched anywhere, is it? That promise. We are invited to travel through the trouble with a God who is able and good and present. And we are invited to believe he is who he says he is. We don't know what trouble we may encounter on our path, but we are invited to know the God who knows. And we can hold on to him with with these three words. Say it with me. But even if. Let's stand together and sing.